Hi, and welcome to Macrina's Key, the podcast where we talk about theology for every single season of life. I'm your host, Sarah Evans. Every fortnight, we discuss systematic theology in bite-sized portions. And along the way, we're learning to see and know God in every season of life, whether we're in the spotlight, on the edge, or being faithful in the mundane. I'm so excited to have you with us. Let's get started. Hi, friends, and welcome back to Macrina's Key. We are finishing up um, what has become a several-episode series on the doctrine of God, namely, who is God and what is God like? And We've been talking about God's attributes. I've gone over some of the different ways to categorize those attributes, and we landed, for the sake of what we're doing here, in the option of doing God's non-moral attributes, the things which he doesn't share with humanity, the things which set him totally and completely apart from humanity, things like aseity and infinity and um, the omnis, etc. We've set, done those, and then we've been exploring more recently God's moral attributes. That includes things like God's holiness, his righteousness, his love, his mercy, etc., So this week will be our last week doing that, and I'll be moving on to a new topic, um, which I'm looking forward to, but I have really enjoyed getting to just focus on God's person and attributes and talk about what God is like, and then consider how that shapes our own individual faith and our um, ways of interacting with God and our ways of interacting with one another. This week, I'm going to start off by talking about God's goodness. So... This is seemingly a a pretty obvious attribute of God, right? We often say that God is good. In fact, sometimes we might even hear a sort of refrain said in church where the leader or speaker or worship minister says something like, God is good, and the congregation responds with, all the time. Well, God's goodness is a significant theme throughout Scripture, and that's where that idea comes from, that we might say God is good and respond with all the time, because it comes up so frequently in Scripture and in our own lives and in the church's history as well. It's a concept that comes up in hymns and in prayers and in worship songs, right? We see this sprinkled all over the place, that God is fundamentally, intrinsically, and fully good. But we also use the word good about a lot of other things, right? I might use it to describe my daughter's handwriting when she does a good job, right? There's that word again. We might describe it to use it, excuse me, to describe a meal that we enjoy. Um, We might even use the word good to talk about our pets, right? And yet we know that God's goodness is of a different sort. So what does God's goodness entail? Well, God's goodness can be expressed in many different ways. For instance, God's goodness leads him to support the well-being of his creatures. And I don't just mean his human creatures, but all of the created order, right, that he supports and sustains. The book of James says that every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights. 
So we can see God's goodness and his actions towards us, whether that's in his generosity, his patience, or his work on our behalf. God is also gentle and kind and even helpful, we might say. God's goodness is so significantly intertwined with his identity that when Jesus is called good in the Gospels, he suggests that to call him good is equal to calling him God. He, right? He responds when they say they say that he is good, and he says, but no one is good except for God. And so he's pointing out that there's a connection there and an obvious one between what he is doing, his work, and the goodness that is revealed by his work and the goodness of God. I've been, if you'll remember, using John Feinberg quite a bit in um, this series of episodes because I find Feinberg to be really um, helpful and lucid and really clear in the way that he talks about um, God's attributes. Feinberg lists many ways in which just the Old Testament describes God's goodness. So we haven't even gotten to the New Testament here. But for instance, God wills good to his people. That might be economic good or material good. He's kind to his people and to his creatures and to the land. And God is also desirable and beautiful, which is, I think, an aspect of goodness and God's goodness that we don't always think about, that God is something or someone rather worth desiring. God is beautiful. God is the source of all beauty. And that is an aspect of his goodness. God's goodness is so consuming and so pervasive that it gives us confidence in his justice and his holiness. So a couple weeks ago when I talked about God's justice, I reminded us that his justice, his righteousness is not the same as ours. And that is true in a couple of different ways. First, God's justice is not about spite and revenge and retribution in the same way that ours usually is governed by those kinds of things, right? The desire to get even. But God's justice, on the other hand, if it was not joined with his love and his goodness, it would be so totalizing that we would only be able to approach God in fear because of our depravity. But because God's goodness is so essential to his nature, it also helps in a sense to temper his justice, not in the sense that God's justice would ever be um, overwrought, but it tempers our understanding of what God's justice looks like. The two are not opposed. They run in parallel. And that is good news for us. Because God's goodness is so pervasive and so intrinsic to his character, I think it also begs the question, in what ways should we be reflecting that kind of goodness? Whether as individuals, as families, as communities within the church, um, and then how can we even encourage goodness for the common wheel, for the common good of our cities and our nations? For instance, I said a few minutes ago that God wills good things for his people. We need to look at ourselves and ask, do we will the good of those around us? Do we work to advocate for the common good of all people? Or do we only practice good goodwill towards those that we love? 
If it's the second, then that falls wildly short of emulating God's nature. And that's one of the things that we need to remember about these moral attributes is that they set a standard for us, a standard that we can't maintain, which is why Christ came to save us. And yet it is also a standard towards which we can strive in the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we ought to be looking around us and seeing how can I will the good of others in the same way that God has willed my good in whatever fashion that um, might be appropriate for the situation, right? Whether that's an economic good or a psychological good, we should be working for the sake of others because God has worked for our sake and continues to do that. There are a couple of final attributes I want to discuss that are somewhat related. The first is that famous quote from Jesus, the one where he says that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And the second is a theme that really resounds throughout the Old Testament, God's faithfulness. So God is truth and God is faithful. We don't always think about truth that way, right? We think about truth as being um, sort of like an objective reality or a statement, something that is verifiable. We don't usually think of truth as a person. We might think of truth in relation to a person as that individual is truthful. Truthful is a way of describing them. But to say that a person is truth is a very, well, grammatically odd thing to say. And it is also something hard for us to wrap our minds around. In John 14, 6, however, Jesus does tell Thomas and the other disciples that I am the way, the truth, and the life. And from that statement, we learn a couple of really important things. First, like I said, truth, though we often think of it this way, truth is not simply a set of propositions or statements for us to believe. That's a really narrow view of truth. Instead, Truth is a person, a being, from whom all of reality derives. God is truth, and therefore truthful ideas or beliefs come from him. But truth is essentially personal. When we believe the truth, we then enter into a relationship with God. When we enter into a relationship with that which is true, we are meeting God in Christ. When we believe God, we then commit ourselves to truth. And second, we learn from this that Jesus is the truth. In other words, all that is true finds its source and its end in Christ. If all that is true comes from Christ, it's clear that Jesus is claiming a divine identity in that passage in John. And so then that reminds us that Jesus is truth and as a aspect or a part of being truth and the source of all truth, Jesus is God. What does it mean to say that God is true? Well, obviously it means that God does not lie. There's no deception in God. There's nothing in him that would cause us to mistrust him or to be wary of him. But God's truth is far more than just an inability to lie. For instance, to say that ours is the true God in contrast to any other is to say that God alone is genuinely all that a God should be. He not only matches our ideal understanding of God, he exceeds it. Ours is the only God who can save because he is the only one who fulfills what it means to be God. Another aspect of God's truthfulness brings us back to his omniscience, which I discussed a couple of weeks ago. 
Because God always speaks truly, he must know all things so that he cannot be mistaken about what the truth is. Feinberg points out that this doesn't mean God tells us everything or that he's obligated to tell us everything. It means that what God does say is accurate to the way things are and the way that they will be. In a similar way, God not only speaks truth, he does truth or he acts truly because he acts within accord, accordance with his nature. Excuse me. We can see this in the Old Testament law, which is intended to guide Israel into a right relationship with him and into an abundant life. We also see this in Christ. Jesus is the truth and his is the true way, which leads to true joy, fulfillment, surrender, and peace. God's actions are just what they should be, and his actions demonstrate the way for us to live as well. God's truthfulness then also impinges on his dependability. He is consistent. He can be relied upon. And that leads us to the related attribute of God's faithfulness. It's inherent in God's nature to be faithful to himself, faithful to fulfill the promises he makes to his people, and faithful to bring completion um, to the things that he starts, right? He doesn't leave something unfinished. This is true even when God's creation and his people fall away into seasons or patterns of unfaithfulness. We see that illustrated quite poignantly in the work of Hosea, a prophet who married a prostitute and at God's instruction remained faithful to her despite her ongoing adultery. In that book, we have a really painfully beautiful image of God's ability and choice to keep his promises, to be faithful to us, even when we walk away from him into the arms of whatever idol holds sway over our hearts. And it's this kind of faithfulness, which really secures our hope in the future. No matter what happens to us, we know that our eternal, our eschatological future is secure because God will bring about that which he has promised. He will bring about a triumph over evil, the return of Christ, the resurrection of all humanity, and the restoration of the created order. Our confidence in that future rests on God's prior faithfulness. Well, it rests on his faithfulness within himself. And then I should say his prior acts of faithfulness, which we see throughout scripture. And hopefully we're cognizant of his faithfulness in our own lives. And that can lead us to trust in God's faithfulness to fulfill those promises, which we have not yet experienced in full. So I have scribbled in the margins of one of my seminary texts that because God is true, we can trust that the gospel is true. Because God is faithful, we can trust that he will fulfill what he promises in the gospel. So these things are interwoven, right? Because God is true, we can trust him to be consistent and reliable and faithful. And we can trust in what God says about himself because we know that he is good. Um, my eldest daughter recently said that God's faithfulness helps us to remember that good wins and bad loses. It's a bit simplistic, but it's also beautifully and perfectly accurate. Everything is secured by the work of Christ and the promises of God, which he is faithful to keep. Okay, 
Now, I want to transition to one last thing before getting into an important question that was sent my way. This last thing isn't exactly an attribute of God. In fact, it's actually not an attribute of God at all, but it is something that is sort of related to God's attributes. I want to talk briefly about gender and God. Last weekend, many in the world celebrated Mother's Day. And as my family and I went for a walk that evening, I was pondering the motherhood of God, an idea which might sound a bit new agey or scary to some of my more conservative listeners. And that's fair, but bear with me for a couple quick minutes. You may have noticed that when I talk about God on the podcast, I use mostly male pronouns. Um, I say he, him, his, I call God father. That kind of language actually got me into trouble in my um, PhD dissertation examination process in my defense. There's a slew of modern theologians who want to do away with that language, or they want to augment it by adding in feminine language. You won't hear me doing that on the podcast for two reasons. One, I really can't give up using a personal pronoun for God because of what we talked about last week. Well, two weeks ago, excuse me. God is personal. God isn't a force. When we're just using the noun God over and over, I really feel like we lose that personal note, that kind of relational uh, tenor, which so significantly sets Christianity apart from many other world religions. So some modern theologians just want to get rid of pronouns and just say the word God over and over. Personally, I think that that misses something theologically, as much as it also gets quite repetitive and is um, a bit tangled up sometimes in the ways that that gets used. Second, though the Bible does use feminine imagery to describe God, we haven't been given permission to call God mother, which is why I won't be using um, feminine language explicitly to talk about God, right? I'm not going to call God her. But let's be clear. Calling God Father doesn't make God male. God is a spirit. God does not have a body. God does not have gender. Calling God Father instead describes one member of the Trinity's relationship with other members and describes our own relationship with God. So I think it's really important for us to remember that even if we're calling God He, that doesn't mean that God is a man, a superman floating around up in the sky. Though gender isn't an attribute of God, however, we can say that gender, in a sense, comes from God, in the sense that both male and female genders bear the image of God, and we bear God's image equally and in complementarity. We'll go into that issue more when we arrive at theological anthropology or theological study of humanity. But Because we can say women bear the image of God, we can also affirm with scripture that God has attributes which we might traditionally characterize as being feminine. Those might be things like compassion or love or um, nurturing when we talk about God, things that traditionally are associated with females. In fact, I would probably go so far as to argue that there are certain aspects of God's nature and really his relationship with us that women understand better than men because of our distinct feminine qualities, both emotional and physical. So I'm going to give an example of that. Um, Bear with me. I know it might sound a bit uh, racy or edgy to some of you. 
I've mentioned on here on the podcast that I'm pregnant. I'm about 35 weeks, I believe. I haven't looked at a calendar in a while. And as any woman who's carried a baby this far will tell you, I've entered the really um, kind of unfortunate, awkward stage. I'm exhausted, but I can't sleep. I have random stabbing pains in my round ligaments because they are experiencing duress. Um, There's really no comfortable position for me to exist in, whether that's standing or sitting or laying or walking. I can feel literally every bone and ligament in my body, which reminds me of the passage in, I believe, Psalm 22, where the psalmist says, all of my bones are out of joint. And I can kind of feel that um, in some sense. And for me, personally, I have a really lovely varicose vein that has shot up in this pregnancy and that's causing lots of pain, the details of which I won't go into on here. And so it's a pretty unfortunate experience in some ways. I don't say all that to complain. I say that to paint a picture of what um, the preparation for motherhood can look like in a very specific way that men can't experience. And, you know, I've been through labor a couple of times already. And as much as I'm not looking forward to doing it again, I do know that on the other side of giving birth, there will be such ecstatic euphoria. I won't remember the varicosity or the way that this baby manages to scrape the inside of my abdomen with tiny fingernails or the complete exhaustion which drags through my days. Christ's suffering on the cross, we're told he was able to look and see the glory that lay beyond the cross. And for the prize set before him, he went through the suffering. His exhaustion and bodily suffering in order to give life to the church is like my own physical duress, which will bring forth life. Just as Christ brings life from his body each week in the Eucharist, my body brings forth life when it's ready. And when I have nursed babies, I have really known and been able to comprehend in a very tangible way what scripture means by saying that God won't forget us, that he can't forget us any more than a nursing mother could forget her child. I've known also what it means to feed another with my own self. We talk in um, the Anglican Church, in the liturgy around receiving communion, we talk about how Christ nourishes us with his own self. That's something that I think men can comprehend, but women are privileged to understand in a very unique way. And so because of that, I think it's important for us to remember that there's an aspect in which we can think of God as a mothering person. And when I say person, I want to reference that personal aspect of who God is, right? God's not a force. And while everyone's experience of motherhood is different or lack of motherhood, there are things that are un- these things are unique to female identity. There are ways in which we can know God. It's a real gift in which um, women are privileged to know God, just like men are privileged to know God in particular ways. God, excuse me, compares himself to that nursing mother to the mother in labor, just as much as he compares himself to the man going into battle. We read that Christ wept over Jerusalem and he longed to gather the people like a mother hen gathers her chicks. 
So it's appropriate scripturally to talk about the motherhood of God and to allow that to carefully nuance our theology from both sides of the Imago Dei, right? So this would be doing what we call theology from below, looking um, at scripture and looking at our experience and our understanding, and then asking how that speaks to us of who God is, looking back up. So theology from below, looking up towards God. We do need to do it really carefully, of course, because though there are these images sprinkled throughout scripture, again, scripture does not give us the permission to um, treat God um, willy-nilly in terms of how we speak about him and refer to him. One of my favorite theologians, however, who did do this sort of writing and theology and thinking through what it might look like to understand God as a loving mother, um, and specifically really Christ as our mother, was Julian of Norwich, who is a um, medieval anchoress and mystic, um, who's well worth reading. We don't know a whole lot about her life. Um, We only have a few texts from her that have been preserved, but they are um, really thoughtful and thought-provoking, and I would definitely encourage you to look into them. So I'm going to close this wee section with a quote, a couple of quotes, actually, from her. She says, Our true mother Jesus, he who is all love, bears us into joy and eternal life. He sustains us within himself in love and was in labor for the full time until he suffered the sharpest pangs and the most grievous suffering that ever were or shall be. And at the last he died. And yet even this could not fully satisfy his marvelous love. It really reminds me of um, a mother in labor who, after it all is said and done and she's holding that child, says to that, that little babe, I would have done that again just to hold you for this moment. Julian also says elsewhere that the mother can give her child to suck of her milk, but our precious mother Jesus can feed us with himself. And he does most courteously and most tenderly. The mother can lay her child tenderly to her breast, but our tender mother Jesus can lead us easily into his blessed breast through his sweet open side. This fair, lovely word, mother, is so sweet and so kind in itself that it cannot truly be said of anyone or to anyone except of him and to him who is the true mother of life in all things. To the property of motherhood belong nature, love, wisdom, and knowledge. And this is God. I really love her tender imagery of God as one who cares for us, who feeds us, and brings us into himself, just like a mother does for her children. This analogy and metaphorical language is really beautiful, and I think it can helpfully nuance our understanding of God's sweet goodness and merciful love towards his people. Okay, I had a question sent in, which I thought fit quite nicely in this mini-series on God's character. So we're going to talk about that now in a sort of question time section. This one comes from Vanessa. She asked, why don't we speak God's formal, his personal name, except in an occasional worship song? And similarly, other than Hebrew speakers or Messianic believers, why do we say Jesus rather than Yeshua? Of course, when I say we, I'm talking about English speakers. Um, you know, if you were speaking Spanish, you would say um, Jesus, right? But we don't say Yeshua is basically the point. And why is that? Well, this going to be a somewhat tangled discussion. So I'm only going to give a few pointers here. 
But first, I think it's helpful to get a little background. God's personal name, which is revealed to Exodus, uh, revealed to Moses in Exodus, excuse me, is sometimes called the Tetragrammaton because it has four consonants. Uh, those, when transliterated into English, are Y-H-W-H. Observant, conservative Jews have long refused to say God's name simply out of respect. The name is seen as sharing in God's holiness, sharing in his very nature. And so finite creatures should humbly refuse to speak it aloud. And for that reason, the name, when it's in scripture, is read as Adonai, a title that means Lord or Master. This then comes to us in the Greek when it gets translated into Greek text as Kyrios. And when you then shift to an English translation, it's written as Lord. Sometimes it'll be in all capitals to indicate that we're talking about or translating the personal name of God. Um, In Spanish, the closest translation would be Señor. So each translation into a new language is basically going to adapt differently for Adonai. Um, And again, Adonai is the word that is read um, instead of the Tetragrammaton. So that's a bit of history. The Bible, however, if you know it well enough, you might say, doesn't explicitly explicitly prohibit the use of God's personal name. And that's true. Like I said, this can be kind of a tangled issue because a lot of it has to do with tradition and preference rather than explicit um, doctrinal statements drawn out of Scripture. In fact, it can even depend on the tradition in which you participate weekly. For instance, in 2008, the Roman Catholic Church decided to stop saying God's personal name in services or musical pieces. The Vatican said this was out of respect both for God and for the Jewish community, which might find it offensive. Some Protestant groups have suggested it would be worthwhile to follow suit, or at least to treat God's name with a bit more respect. So I I could be wrong, but I feel like there's a worship song these days that says God's name repeatedly in the chorus. Um, I might be imagining that, but the argument would be that's a bit too flippant and we need to treat it with more nuance um, and caution. That is what some people say. When we talk about using Lord instead of using God's personal name, a few things can be offered in support, right? And remember, Lord is that translation of Adonai, which was what was um, put in instead of God's personal name. Or that's what would be read when reading the passage and you come to God's personal name. Um, observant Jews would read Adonai. Lord is a Christological title. It announces that Jesus is our master um, and that we are to follow him. It has historical currency in that sense, especially as it connects Jesus to kings and emperors. Um, Some people argue that conservative Jews felt that saying God's name suggested he was one of a pantheon of other named gods. And so by using Lord, they were trying to opt for something more totalizing. Lord, God, like the only Lord or the only God, right? Not just one of many. We have also lost, um, genuinely, the correct uh, pronunciation of God's personal name because it has gone for so long without being said that we don't know how to properly pronounce it. Though, to be completely fair, a lot of our language with regards to biblical names is an approximation. So I don't know that that's a super convincing um, argument there. 
Generally, I would say it's not necessarily a conscious decision um, in most of today's churches to avoid using God's personal name. Today, when we use Lord, it's largely habitual or based on translation choices. And some of those translation choices have been made for us, right, in the scriptures that we're reading, um, not conscious decisions that we're making on a Sunday morning. It's similar in a sense to how we use the word God. It's got cultural currency in the sense of being commonly understood. It's the English translation of the Greek or Latin, etc. And the same is true of Yeshua versus Jesus. When I go to other countries, even English-speaking ones, my name is pronounced differently. It was an ongoing kind of um, funny thing for us in New Zealand that people did not know how to pronounce my name, and it's only four letters, and supposedly we all speak the same language. Jesus shows us that God doesn't mind living in that kind of translation. It's a huge part of what it means to be incarnate, is to live in another place and location, and to accept some of the differences in how the culture engages, even linguistically. And so I I think that this is not, in my estimation, an intentional choice. It's not meant to be negative or something. It's just... Um, how we have translated things in the same way that we might translate Mary versus Maria or Marie. On the other hand, scripture does say that God promised his people would know him by name. And there are portions of scripture that actually might read more clearly if we use the personal name of God. I'm particularly thinking here of Psalm 110.1. I think there's definitely a case to be made really for both sides. Personally, I'm probably not going to start advocating use of the name, but I wouldn't say that's for any very definitive reason other than habit and comfort and really cultural familiarity. In other words, I don't think my non-Christian friends would understand what I'm talking about if I used God's personal name, right? I don't think my next door neighbors would know what I was referencing. And so for me, there's a real sense in which culturally it's appropriate to continue to just say God um, in certain uh, venues, you might say. Vanessa, thanks so much for your question. If you've got a question, feel free to send me an email, macrinaskey at gmail.com, or you can fill out the contact form on my website, macrinaskey.com. I love hearing from listeners and would be happy to answer questions that you have. And if I don't have the answer, I'm happy to track down where it might be. Friends, I think this is a good place to end our reflection, our ongoing reflection and discussion of God's attributes. If you're feeling a bit overwhelmed by this series of episodes, don't worry. It took me ages to write all of these episodes, and then figuring out how to condense each one into something manageable was a whole other venture. Discussing the person of God is no small task, but I hope it's been a good and an encouraging word for you to hear. As you reflect on the many attributes that we've gone through, I want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. First, how did these line up with my functional view of God? Um, Remember, we talked at one point about the difference between functional and formal views of God and theology. Our formal view is what we say we believe, but our functional view is what we actually live out of. So are there areas where I say God is loving, but I act like I don't believe it? What in me might need to adjust, and how can I ask the Spirit to do that in my life? Two, 
how do these attributes shape my understanding of the good news in Christ? You're probably going to hear me harp on this connection a lot. But everything we say about God must come back to the good work He's already done and which He promises to complete. So how does God's justice shape the way we view human relationships or systemic sin or racism or modern-day slavery? And how does His mercy change the way we view the oppressor or ourselves? Three, in what areas do you and I need to grow to reflect these truths of who God is and who He has called us to be? I'd love to hear your thoughts on any of this if you want to. Flick me an email and process some of it. Like I said, I really enjoy hearing from listeners, and these are important questions to wrestle through, and I'm happy to be a sounding board as you're thinking through them. All right, friends, that's enough for this week. Um, I will be back here in this space again soon, and I'm looking forward to hearing um, from you and to talking more with you. Thanks for being with me. God bless. I'm so glad you joined me for this episode of Macrina's Key. If you like what you heard, please leave a review. It really helps others find the podcast. And that's the goal here at Macrina's Key, to share the gospel and make theological education available for the benefit of the church in every season. If you want to get in touch, head on over to the website, macrinaskey.com. You can also check out the Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash key. There you'll find exclusive episodes and materials for members. I love hearing from listeners, so please sing out and get in touch. Until next time, God's grace and peace to you.